Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 6? We'll begin in verse 22. This whole book, gospel, is to reveal to the readers the greatness of the Christ of God, to reveal to us the deity of the Messiah, to proclaim to us that none other than God himself made everything and then accommodated himself to it in the person of a man, Jesus of Nazareth. As I've mentioned before, John, the Holy Spirit through John selects eight miracles, profound miracles to display the deity of Christ. Today, we are basking, those of us who are in Christ, are basking in the glory of the greatness of our Savior. To be in Christ is to be in the bosom of God himself and to be as secure in Christ as the promises of God. So the gospel of John should convict the sinner and comfort the saved. The story of the Christ in John's gospel continues here in verse 22. We'll just pick it up. John chapter 6. And on the next day, all right, let's put ourselves in perspective. Yesterday, the multitude was fed. Last night, Christ walked the sea. And now it's the next day. On the next day, the crowd stood on the other side of the sea. They didn't leave after they received such a good meal. They had 12 wonderful waiters and they kept coming back and saying, can I get you some more? And they would keep saying yes until they were full. Christ provided exactly enough to fill the hungriest and the biggest of any of them. And then he divinely left the leftovers, 12 baskets for his disciples. Precise provision. So now they stayed there. They didn't go home. This is the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it, but it seems to be implied within the context. They go to bed and they say, I wonder what he'll give us for breakfast in the morning. This, so they stayed. G and they saw that Jesus, that only one boat was there, and that Jesus did not go with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples went away alone. And of course, they went out into the sea where the storm came up. 
Then other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. The news spread quickly. What had happened the day before. So people all along the coastline jumped in their boats and made their way over to the place where Jesus had fed the multitude. So now a crowd of 20,000 or 25,000 grows to several thousand more. This is a huge crowd. And there were, you could see that part of the Sea of Galilee just littered with their boats. So they all came together here at the place where the people who were fed ate the bread. Therefore, when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they entered into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, Matthew, I think in chapter four, teaches us that Capernaum was the seat of the activity. It was the headquarters for Jesus. Knowing that he had performed so many miracles there, having heard, perhaps even having seen, they knew that his activity was headquartered in Capernaum. So what do they do? They entered into the boats and, and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. All right. This is the 20 to 25,000 that he fed. And added to that are the thousands who have come to join them. And so everybody is catching a ride on the boats. There were no other boats until these other boats came up. And now everybody who had been fed, they're all catching a ride and they're going to go to Capernaum. Well, we know he starts out there, so let's go and find him. And having found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, what that, what that tells us is this. They had been watching for him all night, all day thinking to catch just a glimpse and thus to rush on him. Remember, they were seeking to make him king. He knows this. Now, so, so he, he ignores the question because, of course, God doesn't lie. So what would he have said? Well, I, I walked. I, I walked across the water. You should have seen Peter. Peter made an idiot out of himself, but I saved him and I just came by foot across the water. Now, I mean, that would have even added to their zeal to make him king. And that's not the purpose for his first coming. So he ignores the question, but it also tells us that they were amazed that Jesus was there because they'd been watching and he wasn't in the boat. There were no other boats until these smaller boats came along. Jesus answered them. Here's how he answered. And said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were satisfied. The disciples seeing these signs 
have proclaimed you are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. But the multitudes were after what would satisfy them personally. It's amazing to me at how over the years the prosperity gospel has been presented um, on television, maybe, maybe by radio, and would gain great popularity because as though, as though Jesus was a genie in a bottle, preachers were inviting people to make demands of Christ. I will come to you because you will do this for me. Temporal things. It could be, I don't know, it could be hunger, sickness, financial, whatever. Health and wealth, as they say. Well, these people were like that. They were seeking the Jesus. And I say that from the word satisfied. Now, in the Greek text up here, ekortasthete. It comes from a root word that means fodder, food for animals. Jesus says, you ate of the loaves and you were foddered. Man, I used to have a couple of horses. And when I got home from work, I would bring out the sweet feed, the sack of sweet feed. Had a little stall built for them down halfway into the pasture that I had. I had a great big horse, Nellie. She was, she was 17 hands high. I had to get on the fence to get on her back to ride her. I had a smaller one. We called her Rebel. She was young and just sort of an average size horse, but Nellie would just pound the mess out of, out of Rebel when she heard me rattling the sweet feed sack. And Nellie scared me to death. She came to be foddered. She didn't care anything about Rebel. She didn't care anything about me. She'd put those ears down. And then she would start hitting the sack out of my hand even before I got to the trough where I could put the feet in. She had me scared. I don't mind telling you. Big old horse. And a friend of mine saw this one time. He was a horseman. He said, she do that all the time? I said, yeah. He said, I'll be back in a minute. Went to his house, got a bull whip, came back. He said, give me that sack. So here come Nellie. She heard that sack rattling. He casually walked down there and here she came and he whirled that bull whip around and popped her on the fanny. And she went out bucking and making noises out of both ends, carrying on just awful. And he rolled that bull whip up and gave it to me. He said, you have this in the other hand every time you walk down there, she'll never bother you again. That was right. She never did. But the thing about Nellie was she wanted herself to be fed, foddered, fed. And she didn't want Rebel to have any of it. And she didn't care 
where I was when I dropped the sack. She didn't care about anybody but herself. I'll tell you, used to raise Irish wolfhounds. Irish wolfhounds, the tallest dog in the world. My stud dog, we called him Gus, was over seven feet tall on his hind legs, as high as I could hold a piece of cheese. He'd raise up easy and get it. He wouldn't even jump. He'd still be at an angle. And he had a bad habit of climbing. We had a white rail fence. He had a bad habit of climbing that fence. Just irritate me. So I was outside in the backyard one time practicing chung kata. All I had on now, all I had on was a pair of karate britches. Those things back in those days were thinner than a t-shirt. Bullwhip was laying over there on my barbecue brick thing we had, and I saw Gus climbing that fence. And I thought, oh, son, you won't do that no more. And I grabbed that bullwhip and went over there and whacked that thing back, and it cracked and smacked me on the rear end. <laughs> I cried. I tried not to, but tears come into my eyes. I got down on the ground, and I did all I rubbed up against the barbecue pit it was horrible and it seemed to last forever it finally went away and only now 40 years later do I confess these things and I thought to myself I will never hit a dog with this thing man them things are awful they're terrible meanwhile back at the sea of Galilee Jesus is saying you just like Nelly you just want to be foddered you don't care about anything else and the proof is going to be made as we read on. Do not work for food that perishes, that is perishing. For the food enduring unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For God the Father has sealed him. Don't work for fodder. And you'll need it again and again but for the food that endures to eternal life. The Son of Man is here to give it to you, for God the Father has sealed him. This is to me. Well, it is. It's very important. As a matter of fact, this whole thing for the next couple of weeks is just such a rich text. Has sealed Es fragisen. Now listen to me, because this will enrich the Christ for you. That word, that long word that is translated has sealed, is a verb that is in the aorist indicative active. Now, there is no aorist. In the English language. This is what makes the Greek so rich at times. In the aorist tense, it means that something happened. And in the indicative, it makes it puncticular, which means it just goes on and on. It's, it happened. It doesn't have to happen again. It means that it happened. It won't have to happen again in the indicative. And it's it's in the active, which means the subject performed it, who is God the Father. So 
God the Father sealed God the Son at a point in time. That is a time reference. The aorist is. The aorist tense. So we go back to John 1. In In the beginning was the Word. And he goes on and explains that the Word made everything. Logos. God the Son. Because in verse 14 of John 1 it says, And He became flesh. So this is Jesus, you understand. And what we are taught here, what we are told in the language, just in that has sealed, in that word. We are taught that at time, it's not necessary outside of time, but at time, now that there is time, the Father has sealed the Son. What does that mean? For God to set his seal or to seal someone in the New Testament means that he has given his spirit. Paul writes to the Ephesians, we are sealed, believers, to the day of redemption. It won't ever be taken away from us. The Holy Spirit, he puts his spirit in us. But we are flawed and we have failures and while we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, we cannot have the fullness, the completeness of the Holy Spirit. We couldn't contain it, wouldn't know what to do with it, and are unable to receive it because we're part of time. Unlike the sun. It says that in the beginning, the Father sealed the Son with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful phrase here. So that all of the power of God that is ever executed in time is executed by the power of the Holy Spirit completely and absolutely possessed By God the Son, because God the Father has sealed him. That's why Jesus performed performed miracles. He sought the will of the Father. Empowered by the Spirit, he executed the will of the Father. Miracles, miracles, miracles. All during his three years of, of ministry. So, here's what... Christ is saying by the person of the Holy Spirit God the Father has empowered the Son of Man God the Son the person of Jesus Christ the Messiah you were satisfied you were foddered selfishly you only thought of yourselves you only want You only want what will make you feel good right now. But that's not what is given that endures unto eternal life. The Son of Man brings to you that which endures to eternal life. The Son of Man doesn't just come to fill your belly. Every time I have a physical need, I ask God to help me. I I mean, I don't tell anybody to back away from that 
Sometimes those needs come into our lives to teach us a lesson, to strengthen our faith. We never emerge from a crisis in life as a Christian weaker than we were before spiritually, never. But what he has that I need more than anything is eternal life. It's appointed unto man once I'm going to die unless the Lord raptures me away. All of us will, unless the Lord raptures us away. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need more food. I need the eternal life that is only given to me by the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's what I need. He demonstrates his power, not to show you that he, he will grant your every wish, but to demonstrate that he is God in the flesh, performing the will of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, thus executing the will of the Father. And the bottom line of the will of the Father is for us to have eternal life that can only be found in him. Let me tell you, next week, if God gives us next week, oh my, the next, just after what we're going to look at today. For God the Father has sealed him. Therefore they said to him, you see, here they go. What must we do that we may be doing the works of God. After that wonderful evening meal yesterday, we need a wonderful breakfast. And we, know we need those nice men to keep bringing us more until we're full. And then after that, we're going to need the next meal. How can we get this power? What must we do that we may be doing the works of God? Now, this, they, they're not listening to him. Only he can do those works. Only he possesses the absolute fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't contain it. I can be sealed by the Holy Spirit. But I'm flawed. I'm, 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 I have a fallen nature. Things go wrong with me. And I'm not perfect. This can only be, this can only happen with the Christ of God. But they think that they can take his place. They can do what he does. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. That you should believe in him whom he has sent. Do you know what that teaches us? Exactly what Paul teaches in a couple of his letters. It teaches us that faith is a gift of God. And God has done all of the work to fulfill that which is needed. Reached out to by faith. That's what he said. This is Jesus. This is the work of God that you should have faith in Jesus.
That's how God works. What a tremendous thing to have true faith in God. This is the work of God. What must we do? What must we do? You don't do anything. God does it. That you should believe in him whom he has sent. The signs, the miracles. Who else? Nobody else can do these things. Then you should believe in the one whom he has sent. This is what endures to eternal life. Now, they said to him, okay, then what do you do as a sign? (laughs) What else do you need, right? What do you do as a sign that we may see and believe on you? And now they begin to diminish what Christ had done, feeding the multitudes. They begin to put it down. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them from bread, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, in answering them, Jesus knows that they think that this he is Moses. This is in Exodus 16. So what they're saying is this. They're saying, look, okay, you fed a few thousand people one meal. Moses fed millions of people for decades. So what you did doesn't really impress against the backdrop of what Moses did. Therefore, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. If you read the context of Exodus 16, it clearly says that the Lord gave it. Moses just sort of managed the project. All right. For the bread of God is the one coming down out of heaven and giving life to the cosmos. It's more than just a few thousand. It's more than just a few million. It is absolute life to those who will believe. Therefore, they said to him, Sir, always give this bread to us. Now, there's a, all I won't get into, there's an earlier word that's in the aorist, but it's in the present. And in their, in their question, what they were saying was, we need you to give this bread to us perpetually. We need you to feed us from now on. And it would, it would go from there. You know it would. We need you to heal us when we're sick. We need you to do whatever we tell you to do. This is what we need. We need what we want and what makes us feel right according to our definition. That's what I call meology. And so much of the world through the ages and especially even in today, people who ever think of Christ so often think of Christ as someone who is available to fix the here and now 
when the real need is to fix the here and ever after for us. And this is what he came to do. He would only be there until he died on the cross. He knows this. Sir, always give this bread to us. Now, I'm going to stop here, but I got to tell you. The next verse. Jesus says, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. And all that the Father gives to me will come to me. On down in the next verse. And all that the Father gives to me, I will never ever cast him out. And I've come to do the will of him who sent me, namely, that of all he has given to me, I will not, new, not lose a single one of them, but raise him up at the last day. That's going to be a good sermon. I can just feel it. You don't need loaves and fish. You need me. That's what he says. You want to feast on something. Feast on me. Now, what happens at the end of John 6? They start leaving him. I don't need you that bad. I save myself. I don't need to depend on you. I have the works. I have the law of Moses. I have my own thing I can do. The only ones who are left at the end of it are the disciples. And Jesus said, you're not going to leave me like they did? And Peter says, who are we going to go to? That's a good question. To give me that bread of life that endures to eternal life, where am I going to go? Only to Jesus. Who is the bread of life? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners. Oh, He's God who created us and came to us, redeemed us on the cross, coming again for us. The Christ of God. Under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on him to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is the invitation. As you exit today, we will have deacons and wives just across the hall as you exit. You'll see them standing in the doorway. I'm telling everybody every week that we have three needs in our lives. Number one, we need to be saved. If God is calling you to his Christ and to his salvation, step in. Let these deacons pray with you. After we're saved, we need to follow the Lord in baptism and be obedient to his great commission. If you've been saved, but you need to be baptized. You step in and talk to the deacons. They're prepared to talk to you about that. Finally, we need to be aligned with the Bible-believing people of God. People who know that we can't save ourselves. Only God by his sovereign grace can save us. 
Only God in his power can keep us saved. And the only Savior is Christ and his word is perfect. You need to plant your life after you're saved in a church like that. And we would invite you to come to Shiloh. And if you have church membership as your need, the deacons are prepared to talk to you about that today. Today. Father God in heaven, thank you for this service. And for all that you do for us. For Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Now, would you prayerfully stand all over this room?